This is NBR's Live from the Hive, a compilation of the week's top stories straight out of the beehive. Do you have something to add? Head over to nbr.co.nz and join the discussion. Beehive banter. And when we say banter, we mean the playful and friendly exchange of sometimes teasing remarks. For example, when Calvin Davis was in opposition in 2015, the Nats were in power and there were fights in circo-run prisons. Calvin used banter when he playfully said the minister should resign over the incident. In fact, he said there was only one appropriate course of action. The minister needs to resign. His bosses need to resign. His officials all need to resign. NBR's political editor Brent Edwards joins me as usual. And Brent, can you explain to me the difference and why Calvin shouldn't take his own advice over what happened at Oranga Tamariki Youth Justice Facility last month? Um, well, I suppose you know he gets hoisted on his own petard, although that was corrections. This is him as Minister of Children. Not it's Minister even worse then, isn't it? Well, I think the thing that you've got to look at is there have been repeated reviews, repeated concerns expressed about Oranga Tamariki. I mean, to be fair to the Minister, I think he's been trying to deal with it, but nothing seems to be getting better within that agency. I mean, so there's some, there are some real issues that need to be dealt with because, you know, you're talking in terms of the institutions, where the facilities we're talking about where these young people were. I mean, you're talking about dealing with both the most problematic young people, but also those most at risk. And they obviously aren't getting the help and guidance that they need um, from these Oranga Tamariki um, facilities. Uh, same facility where, of course, uh, only recently there was at least four of them on the roof. And, on the and, roof. and of course, given KFC and blankets and you know coats in case it rained. Well, now, I understand the Minister said, oh, well, it's a very small price to, to pay to settle it. But if you settle it that way, more people will do it. Well, maybe. But we, we, we're actually talking about young people, not much more than kids, really. And, I mean, I you know I heard the comment about giving them... That got them off the roof. I mean, and it was an operational decision. It's not a political decision made by ministers here. I know every time something like that happens, people say the government's done this. And well, it's operational, and I think the police were heavily involved in that. It got those people, those young people, off the roof without any further But does it incident. not lead, you know, give an example, for example, if you're oh, in there and you say to your mate, because you're in there, you say, hey, mate, oh, you guys don't want to call my girlfriend, I want this, I want that, oh, just go on the roof, I'll give oh, it to you. Oh, so, yeah, go on the roof for a night. I'm not saying it's right. Go on the roof for a night in the middle of winter and you might get well, KFC. They got a coat? I <laughs> got a coat? Yeah, but look, look, there are much deeper problems, and that is how do we deal with these kind of almost intractable problems with some young people. Yeah, but we've and, been hearing Calvin Davis talk and, about this and, for ages. And, it's getting worse. Yeah, and, I mean, some people seem to be arguing, let's get tough, lock them up, throw the key away and never let well, these young people out Well, when you say some people, again. you mean the Nats? Well, I don't know about the Nats, but, I mean, I thought I was looking at you, actually. But <laughs> others, like, um, are suggesting, actually, well, actually... You need to stop using them as as sort of children's prisons and turn them much more into, if you like, um, wellness treatment centres. Put in psychologists, put in the sort of expertise that's needed and people with the experience that actually can help these young people kind of get their lives back on track, to use the National Party's term. Yes, but uh, of course the Minister says um, it's not the same with regard to back to the circuit when he said everyone should resign because he says he's actually trying to fix it. And it's like, I'm sorry, uh, you got rid of Circo. 
Well, he got rid of Circo, but again, Circo was in prisons. No, I adults. understand. So, so we're talking I'm, about slightly this, too... Okay, this is government run. It's, it's, it that was government private run. run. Yeah, and, and he's right. He is, I think, from all you can see, he is trying to... It's cut the rubber. Should he but, resign but, or not? But nothing. I don't think he should resign over this, but what needs to happen Well, if he doesn't resign over this, what would he resign over? The government, of whatever stripe, needs to sort some of this <laughs> stuff out, and they need to get in. And one of the things I think it will take is more spending. And I guess if you go back to former finance minister... Prime Minister Bill English talked about social investment. Yes. There would be a worthwhile social investment in spending quite a lot of money on these pe- young people to help them get their lives back on track rather than treating them as criminals and offenders. And then maybe that would make a difference. Yeah, actually that, sounding so quite means, sensible. Yeah, so buy a lot more KFC. Yeah, you're sounding very sensible. Not like in our day in Borstal. All right, speaking of ministers, very clever of the Prime Minister, I thought. Hey, Kitty. He said, go on, go and leave again. We'll talk when I'm back in a couple of weeks after my European trip. And then he might express confidence in her. <laughs> well, I, th- I, think it was qu- I think it was quite smart. I mean, I suspect, and I've written that, you know, he, he's had earlier incidents, Stuart Nash, and then Stuart Nash told him, no, nothing more. Chris Hipkins accepted that. No, there's nothing more for oh, Stuart so is Nash. This, is this reflection and then, time and then, for and her? Then, and then... And again, Michael Wood. Michael Wood says, no, that's it. And then all of a sudden more shares come out of the woodwork. I think that the Prime Minister is being just ultra-cautious. He gives it a couple of weeks almost, or a week and a half or so, hoping that if there's anything else that's going to come out. He doesn't want to come. He doesn't want to express confidence in her. And then a day or two later, more stuff come out of the woodwork. So I think he's hoping if there's any more revelations that... And let's face it, at the moment we're talking about a lot of... Allegations. Well, that, allegations. And largely unsubstantiated. Anonymous, and about yelling. I mean, it's it not not good, but there's not been a, a clear case put up that substantiated that she's some terrible, terrible no, bully. And, and basically the media can't talk about it now for two weeks because the Prime Minister's saying, oh, well, I've told her to go And away. it's funny because at the uh, post-Cabinet news conference, the media are asking and hammering into him on this, and then <laughs> at some point someone said, oh, is this, the, is this very fair on the Minister? Or is it, you know, rah, rah. And then another said, oh, can you... Help us clear up the confusion. What, what's this all about? I mean, <laughs> what? <laughs> all right. It actually might be a good time for the Prime Minister to go um, overseas. Because then he also won't have to talk about the state of the books. Two billion below forecast, despite more GST, as expected, with cost rising. And more from you and me and even Brent. But business tax, down. Most people at the time, the budget said he, uh, those expected income figures were not going to happen. And lo and behold, they have not happened. Grant Robertson conceding it's not very good. He said Nicola Willis saying it's an indictment on the government's economic management. She said businesses are drowning under a tidal wave of new costs, worsening inflation, weighing the economy down. Yeah, well, it was interesting to comment about worsening inflation because the last inflation number we got was actually better than the previous number. Um, so it'll be interesting to see later this month. when No, the, I want to the talk about next, the $2 billion. Now, the $2 billion... Below the um, Treasury's forecast, but still $4.5 billion more than what the government got in the same period last year. So it's still collecting more tax. Uh, interesting yeah, too, it's collecting more tax from PAYE and from GST. Yeah, which is a reflection of, according to the Treasury, the fact that Rising employment costs. is high and wage growth has been high. Um, but So look, you're not good that it's higher than um, expected, um, but you know, forecast, forecast, it always interests me because... The budget forecast came out on May the 18th. 
these numbers are for the 11 months to the end of May. So, and and they'd had a fair number of um, obviously government accounts monthly come out through that period, and they still couldn't get it right. Um, so obviously they really, really did uh, miscalculate just how well, well corporates were doing. Yes, under the old system that Grant Robertson used to use to work out the percentage of GDP with regard to debt, it's doubled. Our debt's doubled. Well, debt's getting close to 40%. But, but of course, under the new system... But just just remember, though, an earlier Treasury yeah. forecast had um, debt as a percentage of GDP over 50% by now, and it's not. So it, it's actually... Oh, hallelujah. Uh, well, I know, but it, it all depends on which <laughs> forecast you look at to say, oh, this is bad, good, or indifferent. I'll give you a clue. It's bad. All right. Now, the other announcement this week, uh, which is bad for one sector, uh, the Greens rental policy. Basically, making sure that no one will want to own a rental property, capping rises to 3%, and on it goes. Why, yeah. why would you own one? Well, I know, but although, interestingly enough, I mean, I look back, and it's only been in the last couple of years... If you go back to at least, say, 2015, and I look back to, for most of that period through till about 2020, 2021, the rent increases were less than 3% a year through each of those years. Yes, so only... yes that's exactly right. And since Labor came in and everyone well, told them that under their new well, rules, you can't claim I... this, that rents would go up, and they all turned around and said, oh, no, they won't. They've gone up about $150 a week from memory. Well, I, yeah. The, the, under Labor. The, uh, uh, Labor. The dollar amount's a little bit unclear, but I mean, in the last couple well, of years, a couple of years, well, last couple of years, they've gone up over four percent a year. So I mean, and I mean, and that's been a, an issue for people. Um, look, this this will be an election campaign issue for the Greens. They're obviously really trying to well, well to be fair to them, they've always had this position around rents and and landlords, and so the policy isn't new in the sense of you know they've been very clear about they wanted to put in place controls. But I guess from an election kind of campaign point of view, they're really saying to renters, if you want some sort of control, vote Greens. On the other yeah. hand, the National Party and ACT are saying they're going to remove all of what the Labor government yeah, did. Yeah, that makes sense. And I'll tell you why it makes sense. Because if you can then claim your interest back again, you are actually, your costs go down. You're not losing money anymore and you can afford not to put up the rent. Mm. See how so, it works. So you think maybe the Greens, maybe the Greens go into coalition. some sort of coalition <laughs> with National. <laughs> well, I tell you National what. National brings, no, brings not, back interest deductibility, well, and they put in place the rent. No, no, because I tell you now. Well, yeah, because if you if you can claim it back, it's probably not so bad. But here's the thing: um, they might not go into coalition because the Prime Minister has basically ruled that out. He's ruled it out. But again, that's going to be interesting, isn't it? Because if after election day, you have a vote where. Labor can potentially form a government but need the Greens to do it. That'll yeah. give the Greens a lot more leverage. So he's ruled it out, but when it comes to the Greens, for instance, said you've got to do this to get but our support. But then why didn't he say, I don't not rule it out? Well, I think there's a lot of things that get ruled out or not ruled out in the lead-up <laughs> to until election. Until they get and ruled I think, again. I think there'll be some things that might shift after election day if particular parties, whether it's National or Labor, see an opportunity where they could form a government by just yeah. sucking that dead rat. Yeah, to and get then turning around to us, the public who voted for them, so we didn't vote for this, and they go, oh, it wasn't our fault. Uh, we had to do it in order to form a government. Anyway, uh, as mentioned earlier, the Prime Minister's off to Europe. Uh, the signing of the, what, the FTA, uh, that's the Europe one? E European Union. European Union. Yep. Yep. And then why is he meeting NATO? Uh, why is he, well, he's been invited, as is the Australian Prime Minister, and um, I, mean, I think um, Jacinda Ardern went last year um, to the NATO leaders' meeting. It's obviously trying to pull uh, a line, you know, 
countries into that, particularly following the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So, I mean, I think the meeting will obviously talk a lot about that. So, you know, from New Zealand's perspective, I guess it's good to be at the table to be involved in those discussions. Would, would there be any AUKUS discussions around that? There may be, yeah. but, but hard to tell what happens. Um, but that would be on the sort of edges of the, of the of the meeting, not part of the formal meeting. Well, but, Australia's there and but, the US but, is yeah, there. But and, a lot know. of those meetings, the importance of them actually isn't so much what happens in the formal part. It's those side meetings. It's the chat over a cup of coffee or what have you, uh, where you can talk to other leaders in a more informal manner. Where you know, I think you know, you can see some sort of significant gains necessarily made. I mean, he's not going to come back in that, but I mean, I'm sure probably New Zealand will make some announcement about more support for Ukraine, that kind yeah. of thing. But. Yeah. All right. Well, it's good to end on a, on a positive note, you know, with those little chinwags he's going to have. Uh, and you're oh, well, to... and the signing of the EU, I mean, he, he'll make a lot of that. And, and you know, and it's, gonna a, happen. And it's a significant, no, no, but it is a, still a significant move. I mean, it's another feather in the cap for the government, really, over their trade policy. Right. Well, as I said, a positive note. Uh, you're not here next week. No, I'm not here next week. Okay. So I'll have to wrangle up a surprise guest as knowledgeable as you, and that's going to be difficult to find. Not that difficult, I don't know. I just wanted to make you feel better. Anyway, (laughs) we'll see you back in a fortnight and hopefully see you next week. Thanks for watching or listening. Z Energy is concerned about legislation currently at Select Committee which will require fuel importers to hold more fuel stocks in New Zealand. I'm joined by Z's General Manager of Supply, Julian Hughes. So, So you're largely worried that it's going to impose extra costs on, on Z to, to hold fuel here? You'd have to build more installation, more uh, storage capacity? Yeah, I mean, I think like with most regulation, you're looking for what are the unintended consequences. And I think the, uh, the heart of our submission is most of the options available to us will add cost to our business. And as a commercial, um, commercial entity, we'll need to think about how do we recover those costs. Uh, and so I guess that's, that's probably the, the key concern that we have. Um, but there are a couple of there are a couple of other concerns. I mean, we're uh, a company that's thinking about how do we allocate the capital that we have. Um, so you know, we currently allocate a, a lot of capital towards maintaining the fuel assets that we have. Uh, but we are equally thinking about what the transition looks like for us as a company. So you know, every dollar we have to put into hydrocarbon assets means we can't put that into um, uh, assets that can help transition New Zealand to a lower carbon future. So that's kind of part of that mix as well. Uh, I guess secondly to that, um, you know, it's very clear that this market is um, either holding and going to decline over time. So what we don't want to do is get in a situation where we're building assets which only have a very short shelf life and then get stranded. So you know, that's that's kind of on our mind but as well. Do you accept though that fuel resilience is, is an issue that... Yeah, I mean, uh, I think it's um, it's important. You could argue the core of our business, the absolute core of our business, is to make sure that uh, we're able to keep um, uh, New Zealand custom, our customers, New Zealand consumers, call it what you will, businesses, uh, wet with fuel. So you know, if we can't do that, we can't do that with high quality products. We can't do that consistently. Uh, then we kind of shouldn't be in business. I mean, you, you know, so we are heavily incentivised to do that because if we don't do that, they'll go to a different supplier, I mean, that would be one of the obvious choices. So um, fuel resilience, our supply security uh, is absolutely the heart of what we do. So at one level, um, I'm certainly not sitting here saying we shouldn't worry about resilience, we shouldn't worry about security. It's always about what's the balance. And when you regulate an industry, 
what is the impact of that regulation? And I guess it's always, you know, does the industry do it themselves or do you end up with regulation uh, uh, from central government? I mean, I think you've argued in your submission that one of the things that um, they could look at the select committee in terms of making recommendations on the legislation is to allow you to, to count fuel that's en route as part of that stock. Um, but certainly when it comes to, to jet fuel, aviation fuel, Air New Zealand has argued you can't guarantee that it meets the specifications when it arrives here. Mm. I mean, is, is that an argument that you, you accept? That well, there's probably two parts to how I'd respond to that. So I think the first part is to say, and we were pretty open about this at Select Committee, that there is some work to do in jet resilience. So of all the product grades, that's one. Uh, where, you know, with the transition away from refining into a full import model, uh, you know, it's, it's become clear to us that there's resilience needed to be built uh, in that area. So, sorry, so you could, perhaps could hold more fuel and jet fuel, but not not in the other... Well, yeah, so that's that's an area where I'm saying, you know, um, I saw your article last week saying we're, we're probably actually more aligned with the industry than what it, what it might have sounded like, because we are bringing on, we've brought on new capacity uh, at Marsden Point, and we're bringing more capacity on and... Q3 this year, uh, and we're currently um, going through an engineering piece of engineering work to understand what the best solution is to build more resilience uh, at Wirree. So in some ways, we've accepted that, that that particular product grade and that system, the Marsden Point through to Auckland supply chain for jet, does need some additional capacity, uh, and we've allocated capital uh, for that. And actually, we allocated that initially well before any of this, this, this legislation was proposed. We uh, made that initial allocation back in 2021. Um, so that's kind of the first part to that question. The second part is uh, fuel en route. So I think, um, you know, our our submission around that is that New Zealand's quite unique when it comes to where we're placed geographically in terms of our supply chain. So the current legislation um, proposes to count fuel um, currently within the exclusive economic zone. Um, the challenge with that for us is there's very little fuel in a given where we are that's actually captured uh, on that in that piece of water, uh, and because um, you know, our proposal was to capture uh, fuel on water within five days of New Zealand, and that's kind of New Caledonia, and we sort of think there's not a lot that will happen between New Caledonia and New Zealand. So some of the geopolitical issues that are rightly raised that could impact the supply chain we think are pretty unlikely to be impacted from their south. Uh, and we've got some flexibility when it comes uh, comes to that. So that's the main reason we've argued that we should, we should be counting five days from New Zealand as opposed to the exclusive economic zone. With regards to New Zealand specific, uh, around you know, jet fuel, uh, I agree with them that um, you, you do need to test jet fuel right the way through the system and you test it you know, on loading, you test it on the ship, you test it on discharge, you test it once it gets to worry, you test it before it goes on the aircraft. So it's tested all the way through and at any point in that chain it can actually go off, off spec or, or can be at a, in a position. So um, you know, that's, a, that's a debate that could be had but I don't think it's just, um, it's just uh, you know, on that loading port, you know, it could be right the way through, this, through the system. Okay, well, if we look at sort of motor fuels and diesel and what have you, if if you are required to hold a lot more stock, therefore build more storage capacity, do you have an estimate of what the costs would be to Z, and then obviously presumably what the flow-on effect would be in terms of prices for, for consumers? Um, so, like, yes and no is the answer to that. So we've got some choices to make about how we respond. I mean, I guess what I'd start by saying is it looks like we're going to end up with a piece of legislation, uh, and I guess our job now is to make sure that it's the, 
that legislation actually does meet the intent of what it's set out to do and doesn't have some of the some of the consequences which we we could see. So, you know, we've outlined really clearly in our submission. We've really got three choices. Um, we either build more storage, as you said. Um, secondly, uh, we could um, sell less fuel. So actually, just change our portfolio such that we meet uh, that that requirement. Or thirdly, um, we could basically run a really um, de-optimised supply chain. So the way we the way we measured that at Select Committee, as we said, uh, you could just park some boats off offshore, uh, which would be very expensive. But that would be one way to keep your tanks full: was just have the milk running around the country, keeping the tanks full. But that would be that would be really expensive. So all of those options are doable. Uh, they, as we started the interview with, all add some cost, uh, and we'd have to try and recover it. Our estimate. Uh, for building tanks, if we're going down that path, is kind of in the hundreds of millions of dollars, maybe one or two hundred million dollars. Uh, I haven't got anything to comment on how that would flow on for price because pricing is impacted by a whole range of different factors, including the competitive forces. But um, but that's kind of the number that we're talking about, and I think that's consistent with what I heard comparably from some of the other submitters. I think Gail talked about sort of tens of millions of dollars for the size of their business. And, but would that then slow down your transition away from? Fossil fuels. Yeah, well, if you have two hundred million dollars building tanks rather than putting into you know electrifying, um, uh, putting you know uh, EV charges in place, for example, that's we've got to find that money from somewhere else. So um, it, it's it's like most things in business. It's not one plus one, but it, you just take the case that if we're spending that money there on building tanks and not there, then we are having an impact on our ability uh, to transition. What, what's your hope then for the legislation that? What changes would you hope would be made? Well, we've made some pretty reasonable, I think, and practical recommendations. So one is around what fuel actually counts, uh, I think is the first one. So we talked to us before about fuel on water, so that's kind of, we think that's a reasonably obvious one. The other piece, uh, which is um, fuel that's really close to the customers, so the what we call consignment stock, so that's the fuel sitting in petrol stations all around the country or in, in business customers' tanks on sites. So we don't see any reason why you wouldn't count that because you know there's there's fuel that's readily accessible and actually we still have control over it until it's sold. So if there was a national crisis or something like an earthquake, that we can uh, that that fuel can be can be stopped being sold and be allocated towards hospitals or emergency services or those sorts of um, those sorts of um, services. So that's uh, that's one thing we'd like to just get really clear on what's actually going to count uh, and we don't understand why you wouldn't count certainly that consignment stock fuel. Um, we think there just needs to be a bit more thought gone into the actual transition. Um, so you know at the moment it looks very much like 1st of April next year you kind of got to comply. Uh, we've got a bunch of large customer contracts that go past that date. Um, so it's really unclear to me how do we um, consider that. Most legislation that comes in has some sort of transitional provision to kind of get you through, you know, doesn't sort of counteract, you know, contractual law or contracts that are currently existing, but it's unclear to us how that's going to um, play out. So I think we need, and, and, and equally, um, how would you consider, and, and the Australian um, template is probably good to look at here. So in Australia, as, as we understand it, if you've allocated capital towards building new storage, that storage can count kind of from day one. So it kind of incentivises you to actually start allocating capital. So that's one option. And in some uh, parts of Australia, we also understand that you know there's joint government industry investment. So there doesn't need to be any discussion on those sorts of options, which we think would be a useful way to help the industry get through and not necessarily have the same sort of price impost uh, or cost impost, which could then impact prices. Julian Hughes, thank you for your time. No problem, thank you.
Like what you're hearing? Join the discussion with our member subscribers at our website, nbr.co.nz. Prime Minister Chris Hipkins will speak to embattled Minister Kiritapu Allen when he returns from his trip to Europe. But reporters remain confused about what the issue is. I'm joined by NBR's political editor, Brent Edwards. So Brent, what is all this confusion? Can you clear it up for us? Well, well, no, I can't clear it up, and nor could the Prime Minister. You know, we, we, there's been these general allegations that Kerry Allen has, has yelled at at least one staff member, maybe more, a departmental staff member who has seconded into her office um, from various departments. Ha- we've had some confirmation from at least one chief executive, um, the chief executive of the Department of Conservation, when Kerry Allen was conservation minister, that there'd been an issue and a staff member had remo- been removed earlier than expected from their secondment, but that since then there'd been no problems. Other departmental chief executives have kind of suggested, no, there haven't been any great issues. So clearly there's there's something been going on in terms of perhaps relationships with some staff in her office, but it's not clear what. Um, and it was interesting that at the uh, post-Cabinet uh, news conference this week, a reporter did ask Chris Hipkins, well, could he help clear up the confusion about what... And his response was, well, no, he couldn't help their level of confusion. So, um, you know, maybe we'll know a little bit more in a couple of weeks once he gets back from his trip to Europe. Is it uh, more serious than allegations we've had against other ministers, you know, Michael Woods, uh, Stuart Nash, for example? Well, well, not so far. I mean, unless something else comes out of the wood. I mean, what we know so far would not lead to um, Kerry Allen, for instance, losing her job or having to resign, as both Stuart Nash and Michael Wood had to. So, you know, again, unless uh, stuff has kind of broken the story, if you like, if if that news organisation has more information, uh, but so far they have run kind of anonymous um, accusations around poor behaviour, um, behaviour, frankly, that's not little different to what we've heard from in previous governments even with with certain ministers, Uh, but I guess it's become more heightened now following the Debbie Francis review into the culture of bullying and what have you at Parliament, so people are a lot more aware of it. And also for this government, it's more problematic because it comes in the context of those other ministerial mishaps that you you referred to, like Michael Wood and Stuart Nash. Why is Chris Hipkins taking so long to deal with it then? Um, well, yeah, that, that is interesting, and I suspect, and it's just a suspicion, that maybe he thinks he can leave it a couple of weeks. Um, he's been a bit careful. He's, he said that Kerry Allen is a great minister, but he hasn't come out and expressed confidence in her in this situation. He wants to talk to her first and allow natural justice to take, to take its course. And I'm wondering that if he's, if that he's basically prepared to take a couple of weeks because in the past he backed both Stuart Nash and Michael Wood after initial kind of, you know, mishaps and said, oh, no, that's all there is, they've assured me, rah, rah. And then, lo and behold, something else has come up and it's been an embarrassment to him and then he's had to act in the case of sacking Stuart Nash and with Michael Wood telling Michael Wood his position as minister was no longer tenable. So I think he's probably being a bit careful, wants to give it some time, so that when he does come back, he knows whatever he hears, that's it. So I, I suspect that's the, the reasoning behind uh, waiting a couple of weeks. Political editor Brent Edwards, thanks for coming in. 
New research shows China is New Zealand's fastest growing international partner in co-producing scientific publications. The report was commissioned by the New Zealand China Council and I'm joined by its chair, John McKinnon. Well, what does it mean? I mean, how important is that? What the report is saying, and it's a report we commissioned so we didn't actually write it, but what it's saying is that China is growing in its place as a part of the world scientific community and New Zealand's participation with China in co-writing papers or co-publishing papers is reflecting that. So our main scientific partners are, as you would expect, United States, United Kingdom, Australia and so on, but China's now playing an increasingly important role. It, but it's doing this with a whole lot of other countries too, isn't it? So, so are, are we doing enough? Well, you, you, you can always, I presume if you're a scientist, you always want to do more. Uh, I would say that looking at the trajectory of the co-publication rate with China, we're on a steady increase. I would, you know, there's obviously still space to grow, but I would imagine that for scientists, they are looking always at research possibilities all around the world. Now what they will be doing increasingly is looking to China as one of those main partners. Now, what part does that play, this sort of uh, collaboration around research and, and science, in terms of the overall relationship? I mean, particularly, you know, given its economic focus. Well, one of the reasons we wanted to commission this report was to sort of cast a spotlight on an area that maybe does not get as much attention as the trade and the commercial relationships. But on the other hand, a lot of the science which is done does have a bearing on those economic connections as well. There are, there are there's research and studies and cooperation which relates to food science and to agriculture. At the same time, there are other areas such as to do with health or to do with the environment, which obviously are less directly connected with our um, economic linkages with China, but at the same time do play an important role in the well-being of New Zealanders. And I think the report points out, doesn't it? We've benefited already. I mean, kiwi fruit's the classic example. Yes, isn't it? yes, kiwi fruit is a classic example where we, in fact, have taken a Chinese uh, plant and have basically turned it into something very successful, very edible, and very marketable. Now, the report also, I guess, comments around mentions the risks, mm. and of course, there are some who mm. say, "Oh, well, the Chinese communist government." Uh, concerns about intellectual property. Uh -huh. how, how serious uh, are the risks around well, managing I, that? Yeah, I, I think any, any scientific institute or any scientist will always need to do a degree of due diligence when they enter into a corporation with an external party. And with China, there's a whole range of things they have to think about. Um, some of them are you know, obvious, like language and, and, and the research background of the people they're dealing with. Others are specific to China, such as the political and the legal and the regulatory environment. But the expectation, and it's something which is now, I think, built into the way that New Zealand entities interact with those in China, they do have to think about those dimensions. But in most of the areas which have been prominent in the research collaboration between China and New Zealand, that's probably not something which is which is high up there. If you're talking about food, if you're talking about um, and the environment, if you're talking about health, um, yeah, there are, there are measures in place to protect intellectual property, as there should be, but they're not going to stop uh, the wave of cooperation. I mean, given this growth, do we, um, do we need a clearer strategy about how New Zealand, I guess, takes advantage of? 
Well, we have a rolling, uh, basically, five-year program with with China, which frames up the areas which the two sides believe are worth investigating further. And current, as I say, that's food science. It's, I think, med- you know, health and medically related areas, and it's also the environment. And so, in a sense, there is already an existing strategy which doesn't stipulate that you must do ABC, but suggests that those are the areas which are the most beneficial and possibly the most profitable. I mean, the report's based around interviews, I think, with about 20 New Zealand scientists and their interactions. But from your engagement, I mean, do you have a sense of how the Chinese view it? Well, I think China is, as as in many other parts of its of its national life, wanting to engage with the wider world, and it recognises that the uh, benchmarks for science are set largely in, say, Europe or North America. I think they find connectivity with New Zealand scientists to be worthwhile. It's one part of what they do. Let's not imagine it's the only thing that they do. Um, there is probably more interaction with Australia than there is with New Zealand, uh, but it's still important uh, as a, as a way, in particular areas, of, of tapping into New Zealand expertise, New Zealand initiative, New Zealand ingenuity. John McKinnon, thank you for your time. Thank you. The latest report on productivity numbers makes for bleak reading. I'm joined by Productivity Commission Chair Dr Ganesh Nana. I mean, it's kind of like every year we're coming back and saying the same thing, aren't we? Unfortunately, it feels like that. And and to be honest, um, we shouldn't be surprised at that if we don't uh, address productivity from a a serious understanding of what are the underlying determinants of productivity. We will continue down the track of expecting some quick wins, having done some short-term sticking cluster. Uh, But productivity is a long-term challenge. Those underlying determinants are set from decisions we made as a nation, as a community, several years ago. And if we continue to make those similar short-term decisions, we'll end up with the same result. I mean, one of the big key points seems to be, though, just a a lack of investment, shallow investment, I guess you referred to. absolutely. So, I mean... How do, how do you how do you get to a point though where therefore where businesses I guess will invest more to produce the sort of productivity gains that that we we need? Well, investment in, in it, it is about mindset. It's about our behaviour and our mindset. Do we have an appetite for those for the the investment effort over the long term that would deliver us those gains, or do we or after, or are we just after that quick buck? and that cheap and simple solution. That investment mindset um, means we also need to have a bit of an appetite for, dare I say, some things failing, a bit of a mature appetite to risk, and a a mature conversation about uh, if things do fail, we don't go into the finger-pointing exercise, we go into what can we learn from that and can we do even better the next time around. Because investment, whether it be innovation, R&D, or investment in our people, by definition, not all, all investments will come out with the will come out with a, a positive gain. But we need to take those risks um, to uh, explore new ways of doing things, um, to be creative. All of those things we've talked about and written about for a long time. But if the mindset is not there to to take those risks, to be um, innovative, to recognise that some of those risks won't succeed, but to, as I say, not go into finger pointing, but to learn from those risks and build even further, 
that's where we need to be as a as businesses, as communities, and as a nation. Um, and I suppose I I use my example in terms of that investment appetite is the South Korea example. And you just need to look at their stats in terms of investment in R and D. Um, outpacing the OECD average for a lengthy period of time. And lo and behold, over the last 30 years, they have gone from about 20% of our GDP per capita to not only uh, catching New Zealand up, but being well past as New Zealand now. So does that is, does that rest mainly then with the government to do more on R&D? And, and is government policy a big issue? Or Well, government's part of the solution, undoubtedly. Government has a leadership role, but it's government across... Um, cycles and and it's more than just government with a big G, it's more than just ministers it's government in terms of the policy process, it's businesses coming to the table, it's iwi Māori coming to the table communities, workers researchers, innovators all of those need to be at that decision making table and it's part of our previous inquiries, the uh, recommendations about focused innovation policy to, to actually uh, decide as a nation where are our strengths, what do we want to focus on for the the coming years, if not the future generation, rather than spreading our marmite thin and trying to do everything all at once. In terms of not taking that long-term view and, and, and kind of sticking, if you like, with public policy, but we've got an election in a few months, and I, I don't want to talk about that, sure. but is the electoral cycle, that three-year cycle, is that actually an impediment to, at a policy level, getting that long-term commitment? Well, uh, I I think some people like to use that as as an excuse, Um, but we do have long-standing agreements across party. For example, the Reserve Bank Act. Now, that's withstood the test of time with some tinkering. That's been a 30-year focus on uh, monetary policy, the target for monetary policy being inflation targeting and latterly uh, inflation balanced with uh, an employment target. Similarly, there's elements of it in the Child Poverty Reduction Act uh, at the moment, cross-party agreement about the objectives. The way we get to those objectives, obviously, is up for different governments of the day to make those choices, but those long-term objectives should be able to see past those cycles. And I think that's the challenge. That's true leadership with a small L across across governments, both central and local government, and bringing iwi Māori to the table as well as businesses and workers. You, you often hear complaints from business about government policy being anti-growth or holding them back, obstacles. But sure. Do businesses moan too much and do they just need to get on and do some of this stuff? Do they find excuses not to invest? Well, businesses are just like every other sector in our community. We do as a nation have a habit of finding someone else to blame. And I think that's what we're calling for here. And if we're serious about a long-term objective for productivity is getting past and outside our silos, taking ourselves out of the comfort zone and uh, let's stop looking for people to blame, whether it's government, whether it's regulations, whether it's workers, whether it's communities, and actually think of ourselves as a nation. What can we do here and now that will shift the dial for productivity for the next generation? Because if we're looking for the quick buck, it's not going to sustain ourselves over the long term. And I think the numbers, I mean, and you look right back, show that well, up till about 1950 we, we were ahead and then that we've just slipped progressively behind since in terms of you know the OECD, sure. uh, who we compare <laughs> ourselves to. I mean, is, is that been because there's been a big shift economically globally since 1950s 
and we just haven't moved fast enough with it? Or? Well, there's a whole lot of factors in there. You won't be surprised for me saying that. But in the, it, it is fundamentally about the global economy or the OECD economy moving towards services. You know, and that's not surprising in terms of the, the development phase. You start off as a primarily primary-based economy, growing food to feed your people, and then you move to manufacturing, and then you move to services. Now... We have been, arguably, we've been blessed in terms of our ability to grow food and in terms of using our land and our water and, and our natural climate. And that has stood the test of time and helped us uh, retain and remain our, uh, retain our standard of living for quite a long time, even post-1950, well up to the 1970s, if not uh, a little bit beyond. But there is a question about whether we've moved fast enough to recognise that we need to move beyond that primary sector base that we have. It will always be part of our economy and it has to continue, but how do we move beyond that? And unfortunately, that challenge is becoming even more and more stark as we now factor in elements of climate change and, and, and those sorts of things that are really impacting on our ability to be a, a uh, to have so much invested in that primary sector. I mean, the economy has diversified, but you're saying it, has. it hasn't diversified fast enough. Well, fast enough, or we haven't seen um, the chat, or we haven't, um, I suppose, responded to the challenges, whether it's the diversification within the primary sector, uh, or whether it's diversification across the whole economy, but also diversification in terms of the markets that we send our produce to. And I suppose, arguably, you could argue that we have diversified, but we've sort of from a long time ago, gone from the UK to China and Australia being our main markets. But in terms of a diversification strategy, we need a lot more markets and a lot more products in that basket to withstand the, the challenges that are going to hit us over the next couple of generations. And if we sit here 10 years from now, will we be talking about the same thing? Possibly, but hopefully we'll be talking about it in the context of having had that plan about investment or that leadership effort about investment in, in business and government and community, in particular investment in our people. Uh, if you're talking about education and schools and training in 10 years' time, the child would only have just uh, just ended primary school and just gone to an immediate. So whether you're talking about shifting that dial considerably, hopefully we would have seen uh, maybe not the productivity dial shifted, but hopefully we'll see some of those investment dials shifted in terms of what we are investing in R&D and our people and the land and those sorts of things which will set us up for that future generation. Ganesh Nana, thank you for your time. Thank you. NBR columnist Bridget Morton is not a fan of the Green Party's recently announced housing policy and she joins me now. So you think the being too tough on landlords. Well, I think what frustrates me is it feels like one of those sort of sugar hit um, politics, you know, for ex exactly for the election. They've gone keenly after the voters, you know, who, who are renters and basically actually failed to look at the evidence and gone, actually, what are the long-term factors that we need to do that will actually affect those renters' lives the most? Although, to be fair to the Greens, they've kind of talked about this sort of stuff for a long time, about the need for better protections for, for renters and, and that, you know, um, maybe some sort of obviously, um, you know, 
look at you know housing conditions and making sure that landlords meet those conditions, that sort of stuff. It's it's not that new in a way, is it? No, I think they absolutely have spoken about it for a long time. But just because you've spoken about it for a long time doesn't make it good policy. I think what the Greens have done is that you know is our line have done a number of things already. You know the sort of healthy homes initiatives. Um, they've already put protections in regarding evictions. This is like the next lot, and this seems particularly just punitive about going against landlords as if all landlords were suddenly evil and if we could just discard them out of the system we'd be all be better off. What did you think, I mean one of the things is this um, 3% limit that you can't increase rents more than 3% a year. I think the problem is that if you look at all of the evidence and you look around the world, a number of cities have tried this rent control with that small kind of amount or, or no amount, and all of them have had to, you know, has led to them scrapping it because it massively affects supply. You know, we do have a group of investors who just rely on the capital gains of their property and they don't necessarily have to rent out their property. So the higher, the harder you make it, or the less yield they can get or profit they can get from renting it out, the less likely they are to do it. But, but what will, I mean, what impact will it have? I mean, because I, I looked at um, Statistics New Zealand's stats around rent increases, and actually only probably in the last year, maybe year and a half, have rents increased a bit more than 3%. In the previous number of years, certainly back to 2015 or so, they hadn't increased more than 3% a year in all of those years. I think, assuming that you're commenting looking at the average, I think the problem you've got with that is the fact that you need to be able to respond to different markets in different cities because ultimately Auckland and Wellington, you can just look at the rental markets, have done wildly different things in the last few years. I think ultimately though, what are you actually trying to achieve here? And one thing you really need to achieve is greater supply, particularly for those who have least choice. So there's people that I think the Greens, you know, normally say that they're targeting the most, the ones that are, let's say, on the border of homelessness or have housing instability. For them, actually having greater availability of granny flats, rooms and houses, boarding houses with the right conditions, all of those kind of things would actually lead to much more options available to them than doing these kind of arbitrary blanket things that actually just punish landlords rather than targeting where the help is needed. I mean, I think you reference a um, study of what San Francisco in the 90s where they imposed some rent freezes, but that what led to a drop in... 25% drop in... And in supply, yeah, in terms of the rent control. That's significant. And you think about the city the size of San Francisco. That would have been a large number. Given we know how tight, you know, I just think about Wellington, how tight the rental market has been over the last couple of years, I think for many people that would make it really, really hard for them to even get in the door somewhere, let alone actually being having somewhere but in the long term. Where do those homes go, though? Do they end up being empty or, I mean, presumably sold to people who then can be an owner-occupier or...? Yeah, I think there's definitely an element of the fact that you know there are landlords who then sell their property and the first home buyers benefit from that. But the first home buyers are people that do have that income in which they can buy. Once again, this policy is meant to be targeting and looking after those people with housing instability on the lowest incomes, maybe dependent on government support or just have low incomes and they can't, they don't have that level of choice about whether or not we can enter the um, to buy a house right now or whether we rent, it's only that they can rent. And the problem is for them is it makes supply tighter. And in your column, you I think also critical of the Green Party co-leader Marama Davidson and her role as what minister responsible for homelessness. Um, she hasn't done enough. She hasn't done anything. This is, I think, one of the most frustrating things I've actually seen. You know, we've paid ministers well. We've given her a lot of access to officials, the ability to get things done. And she hasn't signed up anything, it seems, like to actually change that housing supply. You have all the resources there as the Greens co-leader, as one of the ministers. Why have you not done anything? 
But, I mean, they have been part of a government, though, which has built more state houses um, and has overseen also, uh, I suppose, a, quite a significant increase in private house building. That presumably must be helping in some way address part yeah, of but the... what did Madame Davidson do on any of those factors? I don't think there's any evidence that she drove any of that. And ultimately, as she says, you know, it's meant to be targeting homelessness. How many people, given that the public waiting list has blown out, have gone from a position in which they haven't had a stable roof over their heads to now having a stable roof over their heads as a result of her actions? I think you would struggle to find anyone. Bridget Morton, thank you for your time. Thanks. And that's been this week's Live from the Hive. Thanks for listening.